Thank you. Morning, church. Really good to see you again from church camp since that time to now. Um, I'm going to just dive straight into it because it's a, it's a very big content. So um, the series on this uh, Gospel of John, to look into what it means to walk with Jesus into the nations of the world or walk with Jesus or to live our lives in such a way whereby our lives reflect to be like Jesus. Uh, the Gospel of John is a very rich Gospel. Why? Because uh, John wrote John in his 90s. But John followed Jesus in his teenage years. So this is an account of an old man trying to write of his encounter with Jesus when he was just below 20 years old. So you must understand, have you ever spoken to like, like a great-great-grandfather telling you about his youth days? Yeah? And it's usually... You know, when a, when a great-great-grandfather, or rather a great-great-grandfather telling you about the youth days, they usually cannot remember chronological. And that's what John did. When he wrote this gospel, he did not write it in a chronological manner. In fact, he wrote it intentionally to debunk the Pharisees that was going, the, 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 the falsehood that was going out there, that they were trying to deny the deity of Jesus. So John wrote the gospel with a very intentional intent to want to prove that Jesus is the Son of God and that if you were to believe in Him, you will experience life in His name. So when John sat down to write John, Matthew, Mark and Luke were already written. When John thought about describing Jesus, where did Jesus begin for the Gospel of Matthew? The genealogy, tracing it back to Abraham. Then he thought about Mark. Where did Mark begin when he wrote about Jesus? The life of Christ when he started in ministry at 30 years old. Then he thought about Luke. Where did Luke begin when he thought about Jesus? He introduced it with a genealogy and traced it all the way back to Adam. So he thought, where did Jesus actually begin? He says, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so John cast Jesus even way before time. Now, when John sat down to write the gospel, he had very intentionally wanted to pull out. In fact, John's gospel only recorded 21 days of the life of Christ. The longest day is John 13 to John 19. That's the longest day that was written ever in any gospels in terms of the details that was written down because there was a conversation that was written about that. But when you look through the entire book of John, John was the only one that painted the seven I am's of Jesus. Seven paintings. And the seven paintings came with seven miracles. And each miracle point towards the I am. Each miracle point towards the I am. So when you read about the water into wine, it's talking about the new life birth of being born in the spirit rather than to be born of water. And that leads us to the John 3.16 verse. So every miracle points towards a certain I am. But when you read through the Gospel of John, you will realize that there's a theme in John's Gospel that talks about how did Jesus live his life on earth. And the main purpose of that is to call the believers of God to walk the manner the same way that Jesus did. How did you know? You read that in 1 John chapter 2. When he says that to those who claim to live in Jesus must walk like Jesus. So John's letters and John's Gospels are directly tied together in one message and the message has always been consistent, that is, walk like Jesus. 
be like Him, learn to worship Him, and learn to follow Him. Hence, the theme called Missions with the Master, John's Gospel is very appropriate because it follows that theme in there to call people to walk the way that Jesus did. So, I'm going to give us an overview to pack it all together, and then we're going to finish off with a climax on John chapter 17, verses 3 to 4. But before that, I'm going to start off with the first one that you started off with, which is John 4.34. If you can, let's read this together. Ready, go. My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of Him who sent me and to finish His work. So how did Jesus live His life on earth? Number one. John 4.34, where he says that the thing that gives me the greatest nourishment and joy is to start and to finish, to do the will of my Father and to finish His work. Now, next one is John 5.19. Let's do this together. Ready? Go. Jesus gave them this answer. I tell you the truth. The Son can do nothing by Himself. He can only do what He sees His Father doing because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. So go back again. John 4.34. The thing that gives me the greatest nourishment in life is to do the will of my Father and to finish His work. John 5.19. I don't do anything that I want to do. I look at who my Father is and I seek to rightly represent my Father. So John deplete Jesus. Jesus' goal on earth is to rightly represent God. Is to rightly review God in a manner that of however he saw the Father did, he followed exactly the same. Next, John 6.27. Ready? Go. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. On him God the Father has placed the seal of approval. So how did Jesus live his life on earth? He does not invest his energies on things that are temporary. His eyes is constantly looking at what is eternal, and he will go for what is eternal. He will invest his time, his life, on his resources, on things that have eternal values within them. Next, John 6.38. Ready? Go. For I've come down from heaven, not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. So how did Jesus live his life on earth? He gives God an empty sheet of paper, and he said to God, God, whatever you write, I will do. Whatever you write, I will do. Let's recap. How did Jesus live his life on earth? John 4.34 My food is to do the will of my Father and to finish it. To start and to finish. Let's pause for a moment. Were there times whereby you started but you didn't finish? Uh, let's look at books that we read, right? We always start to read but then we don't finish it. <laughs> I've got many books that I've started but I never finish it. But what about the things that God has assigned to you? What about the things that God, that you felt that God has assigned to you, or you felt that you have said certain yeses to God? Have you finished what you sense that God has asked you to do? Or have you finished what you have committed yourself to the Lord and to obey Him and to do? That's point number one. Point number two, John 5.19. Jesus says, I don't do anything by myself. I look at who my Father is and I seek to rightly represent God. So in my life, in your life, have we rightly represented God in how we live our lives, in how we invest, in how we relate to people? John 6.27 I do not invest my things on things that are temporary, but I invest my things that are eternal. Temporary versus eternity. How have you been doing with that in terms of what you invest your resources into? John 6.38 whereby he says that the way that I live my life on earth is to give my father an empty sheet of paper and whatever my father writes, I will do. 
I did not come from heaven to do what I want to do, but I came down from heaven to do what my Father wants me to do. Next, John 8.29. Ready? Go. The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases him. So how did Jesus live his life on earth? He lived his life on earth to bring a smile to the face of the Father. He's constantly looking that in his life on earth, is my Father pleased with all that I'm doing. So the thing that focused, so Jesus was a man that was extremely busy, but his eyes was always locked onto the Heavenly Father, looking at the Father, if He is pleased with me. Next, John 12, 49. Ready? Go. For I did not speak of my own accord, but the Father who sent me commanded me how, what to say and how to say it. So in the manner that Jesus lived His life on earth, He sought God for details. He sought God for details. Now, many of us say this. God has given us wisdom. We should know how to exercise our wisdom. I've heard this often said in committee meetings. God has given us wisdom. We should sought God on wisdom. If you truly have the wisdom from God, you will seek Him for His wisdom. That's what wisdom is. Wisdom is to seek the wisdom. So God gave us wisdom, and the wisdom is to learn how to plan and yet, at the same time, seeking God for His details. If God has details, He will tell us. If He has no details, we just go ahead and do whatever He tells us to do, whatever He has instructed us originally. The point is this, always seek the Lord. The, 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 the thing behind this scripture is that Jesus always sought God. He always sought the Lord in details with regards to how He should say, what He should say, and how He should go about doing it. Next, you have the climax of John 17 verses 3 to 4 and that's what we're going to focus this morning. Ready? Go. Now this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. There are two parts to this scripture. Number one, eternal life is to know God. Eternal life is not just to go to heaven. Heaven is just a secondary outcome of eternity. Eternal life, the true eternal life, is actually to know God. Now the word know in this scripture here can be replaced with the word called experience, encounter. So know in Bible is never just a head knowledge. The word know in scripture is always about having an encounter with someone, having an experience with someone. So Jesus says, Eternal life on earth is about encountering God. It's about having this genuine encounter with God. Not a head exercise. Not a religious tradition. Not a tradition of just coming to church and going home. But rather having a genuine encounter with God in our daily lives. Eternity is about knowing God and experiencing God in the fullness of who He is. And as a result, after knowing God, the second part of it is we glorify God. We glorify God. And how do we give, go about glorifying God? We glorify God by finishing the work that He has called us to do. The way to give glory to God is not just to give testimony. The way to give glory to God is obedience. That's how Jesus defined glorification, glorifying God. We obey God 
by we, we glorify him by obeying whatever that's instructed us to do. So this part here, verse 4, takes us to John 4:34 where Jesus says that my food is to do the will of my Father and to finish it. So he pinpoints from John 4.34 to now John 17 verse 4, whereby he says that I have finished everything that you have called me to do. Now let's look at the life of Christ. Jesus was sent on earth. He lived on earth. He was born as a baby. We only knew about Jesus living his ministry life at the age of 30 years old. Right? From the time whereby Jesus was zero to five, that's where a child in a Hebrew setting, they are nursed by the mother. So a Hebrew child actually nurse, uh, uh, drinks from the mother, mother's breast up to five years old. Okay? And that's the process there. Then from five years old all the way to twelve years old, for seven years, a child has to learn the Torah. They have to learn the, the five books of Moses. They have to learn the history, the language, the geography, and all the stuff in there. And that's where they go to school. From 12 years old all the way to, to about 19 years old or 20 years old or 21 years old, that's where they go and become an apprentice. Or they follow a rabbi. They follow a teacher. They follow a Pharisee. And they come under the tutorage of the teacher or the rabbi. Or if they are not selected to do that, they go and, they go and learn a trade. And that's what Jesus did. He went to learn a trade because in following Joseph, he learned to rent, uh, he learned to, uh, he went to learn a trade. And his trade was carpentry work. Now, some people say it's wood carpentry. Some people say it's wood, a uh, stone carpentry. Doesn't matter. But point is this. Jesus went through apprenticeship. Now, we learn that Joseph, his father, died at a very young age. And Joseph was actually running his home business, which is he did the carpentry work and he took it out to the market to sell. So if Jesus was growing up, learning to be an apprentice, he would have followed his dad to go up to the marketplace and to lay long, lay long, come and buy things, lah, whatever they did, and they would be selling on the streets. And people would have come to Joseph and asked Joseph, could you please make this for me? Could you please make that for me? Just like what we normally do when we go to someone to create something for us, right? a carpenter or whatever. Could you please design that for me? You go to your contractors and you begin to ask them to design certain things. Well, that's what Jesus and the father was probably doing. But the father died at a very young age. So if the father died at a very young age and Jesus being the oldest son, tell me what did Jesus do after Joseph passed away? He took over the father's business. He took over the father's business. So probably in the age of the 20, Jesus did the father's business. That's why when Jesus claimed that he was the Messiah, everybody looked at him, I thought we know him. He's the one standing at the market selling things. On. How come suddenly he said that he's the Messiah? Can you imagine you see someone at the market one day stand up and say that I'm the Messiah? You will also say that Scobway, no sell, sell one time me. How come suddenly he become the Messiah? It, it will be something similar to that situation. Why? Because Jesus was known amongst his people. They knew him. And suddenly one day he stand up and says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Can you imagine how people responded to Jesus at that point in time? I, 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 I actually, I, I'm actually quite happy that I wasn't born during Jesus' time because I do not know whether if I will follow him. Really, for any one of us, if you're born at Jesus' time, I don't think we will look at this cell and tell me, guys, suddenly how come you become the Messiah? You, you probably, you, you and I may not follow him. And that's what Jesus did. He proclaimed what it is, and then he went about to do his ministry. So when you look 
at the life of Christ. When Jesus said this, I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do, one has to define what is that work. Did that work start when Jesus stepped into full-time ministry? Or did the work actually start when he was born? When he was a child? When he had to learn obedience to the Father? When he had learned, when he had to come under the parents' authority? When he had to go to school? When he had to learn how to be an apprentice? When he had learned how to take over the Father's business? When he learned how to step into that full-time business role in the marketplace and sell things and begin to promote and begin to talk to people in that way. When he had to meet the client's expectations, when he had to step and negotiate with people, when he has to decide what is the selling price of the product that I've just created. And every part of his life, until he stepped into full-time ministry at the age of 30, and he went about town to town and village to village, to the point whereby he surrendered his life and laid down his life to die on the cross. You see, when you look at this verse, I have brought you glory on earth by finishing what you have called me to do. You must look at the context of his entire life on earth and not just the ministry aspect of it. Now, I think when Jesus talked about this, he was directly referring to the life on the cross, laying down his life for all humanity so that all humanity could come to know him. And I think that will be correct. But if you were to look deeper into that word, you would see there's a greater context than just dying on the cross. It would have been all the details. If you look at all of John's description of the life of Christ, it would be all of the details that Jesus did. So Jesus said, I have glorified you. I've given you my best so that you get the greatest glory out of my life. I borrowed this title from Oswald Chambers' devotion, My Utmost for His Highest. Those of you who have done that devotion material before, you will recognize this term, my best for his greatest glory. Because that is a simplified version of explaining what is my utmost for his highest. But let's look at how did Jesus summarize how he gave glory to God. Number one, in verse 6 of chapter 17, he says, I reviewed you. I reviewed you. I reviewed you to those who gave to me. So how did Jesus glorify God? What did he do to glorify God? He says, I reviewed you. I have rightly represented and I reviewed you to those who have given to me. Brothers and sisters, can I ask you to consider whom has God given that to you? Who are the people that God has allowed you to be surrounded by in terms of your colleagues, your classmates, your family members, your relatives, those people who work with you or for you, have you reviewed them? That's what Jesus did. He says, I've reviewed you. Number two, I've given them the words that you gave to me. In verse 8, Jesus spoke the words that came from the Father to the people. Jesus gave the people the words of life. Jesus imparted to them. Jesus taught. He discipled. He told them parables. He says, I've given them the words that you gave to me. Number three, verse nine. I pray for them. I pray for them. If there's something that really marks Jesus' life on earth, it's his prayer life. I pray for them. And of course, Jesus wakes up early in the morning to pray. He prays late into the night. 
I think Jesus has insomnia, actually. I think Jesus sleeps very little. I do not know how he can survive sleeping so little and do so much. But he slept very little, I think. But, but, he, but the prayer life really marked the way that... I think, I think Jesus lived his life on earth basically to show Singaporeans how to live our lives because we're also very busy people. And, and, and he basically learned how to block out prayer as a main priority in how he lives his life. I pray for them. Next, verse 12. I protected them and kept them safe. And this refers to the inner circle that Jesus was given. The, the, those that he claims to be his disciples and his followers because they followed this rabbi. So therefore, Jesus had a group of people that he was responsible for because he was the rabbi. And therefore, he says, I protected them and I've kept them safe. And then you read in verse 14, I've given them your word, but the world has hated them. So in other words, Jesus had given them, the disciples, the inner circle, something that is very confronting to the society. Now you notice that the flow is moving from just a very nice part of it, which is I reviewed them, I've given them the word, to now a little bit more aggression, now a little bit more provocative in that he protected them and kept them safe and then he gave them the words but this word that he gave to them provokes the society, provokes the system, provokes and confronted the issues of the society. So the, so the thing that Jesus gave to his, to his inner circle is a changing element, it's an element of transformation that will cause confrontation within the society. And then you go down to verse 18. I've sent them into the world. You see the progression. You see the progression, what Jesus has done with regards to what it means to reveal God and what it means to really, really give God the glory. I send them into the world. Next, I pray for those who believe in me through that message. So Jesus is now praying for the impact that they will create within the society and all that will come as a result of the disciples going out into the nations. And then I've given them the glory that you gave to me so that I may be in them and they may be in me. So, so I love this progression. I mean, John is such a genius writer. So, so when he started off, when he talked about Jesus giving the glory for God, he talked about it very much inner circle, the devotional life, which is I reviewed them and I've given them your words and I pray for them. Then he went into this inner circle of his disciples about how he has imparted to them and what is given to them and how he has sent them into the world. And then now he talked about the world who will come to believe uh, him through them, and then he brings them back into this devotional life again, whereby he talks about, I've shared who I am with them so that they may be in me and I may be in them. I tell about it. What, what do you mean by I in them and they in me? I mean, that's what you read in verse 22. May they be brought to complete unity so that the whole world will know that you have sent me. So when you look into John's Gospel, right, what does it mean to say, I in them and you in me? So you think about Venn diagram. Those who pass, pass math, Venn diagram. How do you draw a Venn diagram in this process? A Venn diagram of I in them and you in me is one circle and there's another circle inside. So how would you picture that? You take a sponge. A sponge that's soaked with water. So the water is in the sponge. Then this sponge is in the pail. 
the sponge is in the, in the water. So the water is in the sponge, but the sponge is also in the water. That's what it means, I in them and you in me. And Jesus says this, if they, together with the new people that have come to know me, if they can achieve this unity, the world will know that you have sent me. Wow. It's actually not strategy. Like. World evangelization is actually not a strategy. World evangelization is achieved when we choose to lay down our lives and be united together. And be in love for each other. And be committed to each other. And choose not to isolate ourselves, but to say that let's journey together. Let's walk together. I may not be on, as, on fire as you are, but I want to be part of it. So let us be part of this whole process and join together and contribute to this greater success of what it means to see the whole world coming to know Christ. Now I've been following up with uh, your pastor Anthony about the outcome of the church camp. And I'm not, I mean, I, 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 I enjoy doing church camp, but I'm also very sien with church camp. Because, you know why? Many, church camp, and many churches enjoy listening to me, but they don't like to do anything after that. And this makes me very picky. You know, I, 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 I'm not someone that, 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 that will invest my time and my energy just to make people feel happy about their Christian life. And in the end, they don't want to do anything about it. Then do what for? I must go and chill with my family, right? So, 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 so I, I look forward and I, and I was hearing from Anthony about your cell groups, how you continue to go and to go back to some of the locations that you've gone for your outreaches and how you continue to do that. And I heard about your fun fair, about how you use up the whole church, about 3,000 people from the community, including the church, came together for this work. That's fantastic. I hope, I hope it's not 20% of people doing 80% of the work. No, right? No, right? Thomas, no, right? Okay. How many percent? Okay, never mind. <laughs> it should not be that way because, you know why? In Singapore, the church, not actually not Singapore, in globally, it is known that 20% of the church members do the 80% of the work. It should not be this way. If the church is truly embarking on this thing called the mission with the master, it should be 80%, if not 100%, 100% is impossible, but if not at least 80% of the people doing the, all the work that's there, 100% of the work. And that's what we should be doing. It is about coming together and everyone here contributing towards something. And it's not only those people who are free. Those people who are, who got, who got nothing to do, that means they're retired. No, it shouldn't be. It should be young and old, everyone jumping together and contributing towards that to, to reveal God, to reveal God, to pray for people and to give people the words of life that God has given to us and choose to be united together. And as a process of uniting together across generations, across nations, across races, that the world will see Wow, this is, this is possible. And that's such an incredible thing there. And then verse 26, I have made you known to them. This word, I have made you known to them, goes back to verse 6, I have reviewed you. I have reviewed you. But verse 26 has a little bit more than just revealing God. This verse 26 says, I have made you known to them, and that has got to do with the ways of God. The ways of God. How does God work? So Jesus says this, I have not only reviewed you, I've shown how you work. 
how you function and how you reveal yourself in that manner. So when we look at the life of Christ, I think there's one more. Yeah. That I may be in them. So at the end of it, it goes back into the intimacy with God in regards to how did Jesus live his life on earth. Brothers and sisters, this to me is a summary. In Jesus' prayer on John 17, he gave a summary of how he gave glory to God in a manner that he lived. He revealed God to them. He gave the people the words of God. He prayed for them. He protected them. Gave them the words and the world has hated them. Send them in the world. Pray for those who have believed in me through the message. Given them the glory that you gave to me so that we may be united together. Make your ways known to them so that I may be in them. So Jesus says, this, go into all the world. And then the last part is, lo, I will be with you. Right? You realize something? If you don't go, uh, there's no lo. Eh? The I will be with you it's tied to the word go, right? He says, go into all the world and disciples all nations and baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and teach them to obey all that I have commanded you. And lo, I will be with you. So we always like to take the last part. Lo, I will be with you. But we don't take the first part, which is to go. So no go, no lo. Right? So if you want to have the law, which is I will be with you, you have to go. And part of the process in John 17 is actually talking about Jesus says this, I have done this all for you. Now come and take a walk with me and let's go out. Let's go into the places where God has given to us. So in my conclusion, to know God, the greatest goal of a Christian is not the great commission which is to do the task of God, but the great commandment, which is to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Our commitment to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength will give us the fuel to go into all the world and make God known. Our commitment to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and to really know Him, which is John 17 verse 3, to know God, is the fuel for all of us to go and to review God and to do everything that's listed here. To, in order to do this well, we need to sink into loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind and strength. So who is God? Let me finish off with this. Jesus in the Bible. I just want you to sit back and to watch this little clip that I'm going to share with you. In the book of Genesis, Jesus is the creator of the universe. He's the breath of life, and he's the seed of the woman who will crush Satan's head. In the book of Exodus, he's the Passover lamb. He's the one who takes away all of our sins. In the book of Leviticus, he's the great high priest. He's the one who stands in the gap for us. In the book of Numbers, he's the cloud and the fire. He's the one who will faithfully lead us and guide us. In the book of Deuteronomy, he's a prophet just like Moses. He's the one that delivered us from slavery. In the book of Joshua, he's the conqueror of the promised land. He's the one who leads us in the victory. In the book of Judges, he's the judge and the lawgiver. He's the one that brings Brings us back to the Father. In the book of Ruth, he's like a kingsman redeemer. He's the God who redeems us. In the book of Samuel, he's a prophet of the Lord. He's the one who speaks the word of the Lord to us. In the books of Kings and Chronicles, he's the reigning king. He's the one who reigns and sovereign overall despite the frailty and the weaknesses of man. In the book of Ezra, he's a faithful scribe. He's the one who teaches us the ways of God. In the book of Nehemiah, he's the rebuilder of the broken wall. He's the one who will rebuild broken lives. 
in the book of Esther. He's like a Mordecai. He's the one who guides us to live our destiny in God. In the book of Job, he's the redeemer that lives. He's the one who is far greater than all of our troubles. In the book of Psalms, he's the Lord who is our shepherd. He's the God who makes us lie down in green pastures, leads us beside quiet waters, and the one who restores our souls. In the book of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, He's the wisdom of God. He's the one who has answers to all areas of our lives. In the book of Songs of Solomon, He's the lover and the bridegroom. He's the God who is the lover of our soul. In the book of Isaiah, He's the one who is seated on the throne, whose name is Wonderful Counselor, the Almighty God, and the Everlasting Father. In the book of Jeremiah, He's the potter who molds us and who shapes us. In the book of Lamentation, He's a prophet who weeps for us when you and I go astray. In the book of Ezekiel, he's a breath of life in the dry bones. He's the one that reveals, that, that revives all the dryness and the desert in our lives. In the book of Daniel, he's the fourth man in the fiery furnace. He's the one who is faithful to be present in all of our hardships. In the book of Hosea, he's the bridegroom. He's a stubborn lover. In the book of Joel, he's the baptizer with the Holy Spirit. He's the one who empowers. In the book of Amos, he's the burden bearer. He's the one who carries our burden. In the book of Obadiah, he's the mighty savior. He's the one who saves us from our pits. In the book of Jonah, he's the forgiving God. He's the God who forgives us no matter how sinful we are. In the book of Micah, he's the messenger with the beautiful feet. He's the one who constantly speaks to us. In the book of Nahum, he's the avenger of God's elect. He's the one who is our defender. In the book of Habakkuk, he's a great evangelist that cries out for revival. He's the one who reaches out to all. In the book of Zephaniah, he's a God who rejoices over us with singing and dances over us with shouts of joy. In the book of Haggai, he's the one who shakes the nations and will fill his temple with his greater glory. In the book of Zechariah, he's the mighty one that says, for it's not by might, not by power, but by my spirit. In the book of Malachi, he's the son of righteousness that rises up with healing it. In his wings. In the book of Matthew, he's a Messiah who is the coming king. In the book of Mark, he's a servant king who shows us the role of a servant leader. In the book of Luke, he's a son of man, he shows us humanity. In the book of John, he's the son of God that shows us divinity. In the book of Acts, he's the fire that comes down from heaven. He's the one who's the ascended Lord who died, resurrected, and raised to heaven so that you and I can have life. In the letters to Romans, he's a justifier. He's the one who makes us right. And so we have no wrong. In the letters of Corinthians, he's the power and the gifts of the Spirit. He's the one who shows himself relevant in every situation. In the letters of Galatians, he's the one who sets us free from all bondages and slavery. In the letters of Ephesians, he's the one who blesses his church with his glory, with the riches, so that the church may display the manifold wisdom of God. In the letters of Philippians, he's the God who meets our every need. He's our faithful pastor and provider. In the letters of Colossians, he's the fullness of the Godhead. He's the one who holds all things together when your life crumbles and falls apart. In the letters of Thessalonians, he's the soon incoming king. He's the one who is our ultimate savior and our redeemer. In the letters of Timothy, he's the mediator between God and man. He's the man of peace. It's like a bridge. In the letters of Titus, he's a faithful pastor. He's the one who cares for our growth. In the letters of Philemon, he's a friend who's closer than a brother. He's like a buddy. In the letters of Hebrew, he's the blood that washes away once and for all, all of our sins. In the letters of John, he's a great physician. He's a God who heals us of our body, soul, and our spirit. In the letters of Peter, he's a great shepherd. He's a chief shepherd who leads us by his exemplary lifestyle. In the letters of John, he's a God who loves and loves and loves and loves and loves and loves and loves to the power of infinity. In the letters of Jude, 
He's the keeper of His people. He's the one who keeps us from falling and presents us blameless before God. And in the book of Revelation, He's the Prince of Peace, the Son of God, the Lamb of God, the Great I Am. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He's the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He's the one who is coming again for His spotless bride. He's the faithful one. He's worthy of all of our praise and worship. He's the reigning King. When all nations, tribes and tongues and angels will bow before Him, crying out, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. This is the God. And He says, I have brought you complete glory by finishing everything they've asked me to do. This is the King of Kings who has subjected Himself to humanity so that humanity will learn how to walk like Him. We'll learn how to walk with Him. And my question to Amokyo Methodist Church is this. How do you live your life? And what has God entrusted to you? And how do you carry this vision? What does it mean to be a Methodist family after God's heart? Except that you and I follow Him. You cannot be after God's heart and that's it. But there is an element of of obedience to know God is to do the next part, which is to obey Him. Which is to obey Him. I look at these words here. Celebrating God's love in Amokyo. It's such a heavy loaded word. What does that mean for you? I wish you could unpack this. What does it mean to celebrate the love of God in Amokyo? How does God's love look like amongst the community surrounding you and within this district and within this neighborhood? How does that look like for you? So what is the greatest longing of your walk with God is where I'll end. What do you long for in your walk with Him? What do you? What really kicks you alive? I hope it's not just coming to church on a Sunday. You cannot do that. Christianity is more than just coming to church on a Sunday. It's a daily walk with Him. It's a daily walk with Him whereby every day we end our day by looking to God and say, God, thank you for this day. I've given you glory for what you have entrusted me to do. What profits a man if he gains the whole world but he loses his soul? What profits a man if he gains the whole world but he loses his soul? And my prayer, my desire for you is this that you will go beyond what is earthly. You will go beyond what is currently that you see, that you will hit for eternity. Because Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Let's pray together. God, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for your word. I thank you for how John presented Jesus through this gospel. I pray for all my brothers and sisters here. I could see, God, that you have captivated them with who you are through the lenses of John. And I pray, God, that they will take this beyond just words, but that, God, it will be translated into how they make decisions, into how they all of us live our daily lives into how we choose to walk like Jesus. We don't just want to know Jesus here. We want to walk like Him. 
Help us, God. Help us, God. We give ourselves to you. We thank you for your Holy Spirit who lives in us, that is faithful to lead us and to guide us so that we can live our lives in such a manner that we can echo like Jesus. Dad, I have brought you glory on earth by finishing what you have called me to do. I don't know how you want to end your life on earth, but this scripture has marked me on my tombstone. What I would like it to be inscribed is that my best for His greatest glory. If there's one thing I want to be known for, is I've lived my life in such a way whereby God gets the greatest glory out of me. And I pray that to be seen for all of us here as well. That there will be a longing for God. That you will do everything for the glory of God. In Jesus' name, Amen. Thank you.